Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This is our second episode covering Hobbs Hogg, our discussion episode. Hobbs Hogg is by Alan Moore, and it was published in 1996. Right. This is the first chapter of Voice of the Fire. It's the, the second episode that we've done on it. Uh, I'll just remind people and say that we read the 2003 edition with an introduction by Neil Gaiman. That is actually going to matter for the discussion that we're going to have. But before we get into that discussion, I want to say uh, a few words of uh, real serious, serious business gratitude to our Patreon supporters. Uh, although this episode is coming out in early 2021, where we are, it is still not quite Halloween of 2020. In fact, it's actually October the 13th today. Not a Friday, but, you know, still pretty cool and appropriate for uh, for doing a weird fiction podcast. And I know that for everyone, right, this year, 2020, it has been a year of fears, a year of anxieties, right, about health, about safety, it's about jobs and financial security. But even with those fears and anxieties, our Patreon support has grown a lot this year. And just in the last few weeks, we've received commissions for six episodes, which is a, a lot of support for us. And that support, and and really, you know, by support, I, I mean generosity, right? That generosity, that is so important to us. We're really very grateful for it. We're also very touched by that. It means a lot to us that people want us to talk about stories that matter to them. So we just wanted to take a moment here at the top of the show and say, thank you. It really does mean the world to us, not just the financial support, not just our listeners wanting us to share what they love and kind of share it back with them and, and go through that, uh, you know, an analytic and, and process of, of critique. Uh, we love doing commission episodes because one, we get to buy books <laughs> with our podcast <laughs> money, which we can never have enough of. But two, it really exposes us to a lot of stuff that we wouldn't otherwise think to cover. And, uh, it enlarges uh, and enriches us and uh, our community in, in such a great way. So thank you so much to everybody who commissions episodes, everybody who supports us on Patreon. Uh, we can't thank you enough, but let's do what we're here to do. Let's get into the discussion of Hobbs Hogg. Yeah. So the elephant in the room, which I think we should just address first, right? The elephant in the room is the language. It's this limited vocabulary and really confused <laughs> grammar and, and syntax here. And I, I guess the first question to ask, Brandon, is simply, did you like it? And and maybe maybe an entry point into did you like it or not? What was your process with it? This was not an easy thing to just open up and and read. So walk us through the process you had when you discovered that this was not written in regular standard written English as it is conducted around the year two thousand. Yeah, I mean, I I, I will say I kind of had to read this story in like a quiet room all by myself uh, because. I don't know whether it was projection or something else. Like it really amped up my uh, misophonia. Like, so if I heard people talking or like, you know, my wife came in and was like eating lunch with potato chips and I was like, get out of here, <laughs> you know, like I'm reading. Uh, so I, uh, you know, that that's, that's part of what happened in reading this is it kind of like aggravated me, I guess, on some level, my first time reading it. Um, by the time I got to the end, I, I realized that there was a lot of fair play in this story. Alan Moore did do the work to allow me to understand what all of his weird language meant. So I, I wouldn't say that this 
the story was written with like without a sense of fair play. It's absolutely decodable. It is absolutely understandable. It has a lot of elements in it that you and I both like about Gene Wolf stories. Like it's puzzling. Uh, it's difficult. There are a couple different interpretations to go down uh, in terms of the, the the path to interpretation. Um, and it was a lot easier to read the second time around. Like I could skim it, but it was it was an aggravating first read. I don't think I can hide that. Um, and and that is really rooted in the language of the story. And then doing a second read of it, realizing that all of the depth of the story, all of the challenge of the story is purely in the way it's communicated, not in what the actual story's about, not in the character motivations, not in difficult emotions. Um, I don't know if I loved it. I think I admire it on some levels of craft. And, and, and we brought some of that up in our recap episode. Right. I think that's exactly the, the way to, to, to put it, that it is admirable. It is a technical, artistic triumph, really. I mean, this is a masterpiece of playing with language. Alan Moore invents his own language here. He uses English words to do it, uh, takes uh, modern English grammar and syntax as a starting point, but essentially invents his own language out of that. And that's and it is really interesting. It's really cool that he does that. But yeah, wow, it was hard. And I bounced off it the first attempt at reading it. I mean, I should say, you know, when I prepare for the podcast, all of the reading that I'm doing is my bedtime reading. Uh, we're 10 months into having a baby. And so I'm on five hours of sleep a night, you know, for almost a year now. <laughs> and uh, bedtime is a tired time for me. And so I just could not uh, focus on this. I had to reorient the entire week, you know, for preparing for this episode where I had to do my reading and at uh, times when I normally don't and use my reading time for other tasks and so on. And in fact, really freaked out. Actually, I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be ready for the recap episode on time uh, because of the challenge of the language. So that was something that I found frustrating. But once I got into the rhythm of the language and understood what was going on and had made some headway with understanding the way that I was using some of the words and, you know, the dreams in particular early on were uh, kind of a stumbling point, right? Realizing that it wasn't that I was confused about what was happening. It's that the narrator's confused about what was happening, right? That was a real stumbling block at the beginning there. Once I got over that that stumbling block, or I almost said hurdle because I feel like mixing metaphors as usual. <laughs> um, once I got over that, though, I actually really quite enjoyed the process of reading it and even read quite a bit of it out loud. I mean, which is hard to do. It's not very rhythmic. It's not a beautiful language. Uh, the, the sound of it is not beautiful, but it's it's really, really cool. And so I did come to did come to enjoy it. But we should say that, you know, the rest of the book is written in standard modern English circa 2000. So the next question that I've got, Brandon, is uh, was it a good idea to write this one chapter this way, right? Was it a good idea to write the first chapter of your novel in this obtuse, made-up language? It's certainly not something that one would do if one has a mind to the marketplace to maximize uh, <laughs> to maximize sales and things like that. It's, it's a little bit right. maybe cruel. It's a little off-putting. It is not maybe the best way to introduce a novel, like what you're trying to get across in in the whole scope of the novel. Um, but like I said, you know, one, we haven't finished the book yet. We haven't finished this novel. We don't know if, you know, 
these bones are going to be dug up at some point, uh, and it's going to it's we're going to get a different interpretation of this story down down the road. But no, I don't. I don't think that's how I. It's not how I would open a novel. I don't think it's a good way to start a book that you want people to read. Um, what I really thought of is the opening of portrait of a a portrait of the artist as a young man by James Joyce, yeah, yeah. who has this similar sort of uh, language to introduce the reader first to kind of the stream of conscious narrative, stream of consciousness narrative style. But also it's that of a, of a child uh, who's growing up and his language develops as he grows up, which is also kind of a major point of that novel, which is that kind of language creates us in, in, in certain ways or it can uncreate us as well. So I thought a lot about Joyce uh, and what he was doing in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in this opening chapter of this novel. Um, but I don't think it has the same effect that the opening of, of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man has. Yeah, I mean, th- this is only something you can do if you've already written The Watchmen, right? <laughs> right and you've right. already established your credentials. You've already made all the money you're ever going to need for the rest of your life. And you've also already established an, an audience, right? And yeah, I'm glad you brought up Joyce. I was also thinking of Faulkner, like this uh, seems like the, the sound and the fury to me as well. But uh, more, Alan Moore talked about exactly this question in an interview that he did with uh, Barry Kavanaugh of Blather uh, shortly after the book was out. This was in the year 2000. So actually before the uh, edition that we've we've been reading this out of. And here, here is what Moore has to say about uh, about this to this question. Well, it's almost unreadable. I loved it, but people have pointed out to me since that if I was going to be doing my first novel and the first chapter of my first novel, then perhaps it might not have been a bad idea to do it in English. But uh, what the hell? You know, that's uh, <laughs> that was Alan Moore's answer to that question, right? And, you know, is it I didn't write this for money. I didn't need this to be a commercial success. I will say too, I, I don't know that you read the introduction that Neil Gaiman wrote, Brandon, because usually if you're not doing the discussion, you know, we do the we do the other person, the person who is doing the discussion, the courtesy of uh, not reading the introduction because, you know, we're mining those for uh, for fodder here. And uh, Gaiman's introduction was, uh, was quite well written. The main thrust of the introduction, which Gaiman does a good job of obfuscating a little bit, but the main thrust of the introduction is, hey, um, it's okay if you skip the first chapter. (laughs) And that's that's really what it is. The 2003 edition was meant to actually be like commercially viable. And so Gaiman's introduction suggests actually that if you don't want to read the first chapter, you don't have to. You can start really the book at any chapter. You can read it around like in a in a cycle, or you could just read bits and pieces of it whenever you feel like and treat it like a short story collection. Doesn't matter. But hey, just to be clear, you don't have to read the first chapter. That's that's the point of that introduction. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So recognized as a problem, but I'm glad that we did start here. I'm glad that we worked through the challenge of it because I did eventually not just come to appreciate, but actually come to to quite in, enjoy it. But let's talk about why Moore wrote this story, wrote this this chapter with this limited vocabulary and confused grammar. Uh, there are, I think, two possible answers from the the text, right? If we're only using the text, I think we can come up with two possible answers. I, I think we should just consider those in turn before we look outside the text. I do have more from this, uh, this interview. Uh, so the first thing to consider is that this manner of speaking is unique to the narrator, right? That this is not the language of his people. It's his language because he has some kind of neurodevelopmental disorder or some kind of learning 
disorder. Uh, that's certainly one interpretation we could have here. So, Brandon, what do you think is the the evidence for that? And and do you actually think that's what's going on? And uh, and then we'll explore the other option. Well, my evidence for that is that he simply cannot understand what other people are up to and like what they say. Like, it's not that he can't understand. It's not just that he can't understand the culture of the people who are beginning to become settled. It's that he can't learn what it means either. So it's not, it's not just, uh, this is new information. I don't understand it. It's that he, he, he can't, it seems as though he's not able to learn what it actually means. Like the number of times the girl explains this stuff to him doesn't help him learn what is going on in the culture of the settlement people. His problems with like object permanence seems to be a real issue. His conviction about magic that's related to this object permanence issue seems to contribute to my understanding that he just, he has some disabilities and, um, of course, his language is the language of the time, uh, which I think we can see in the poetry, uh, in the song of the path, but his comprehension is way down. So that I think there's evidence for that uh, peppered throughout the story. Yeah. So I think I have come down on the side that I think everyone else is on, which is that the the narrator is intellectually challenged in, in some way. We don't know in what specific way, what the cause of that is or anything like that. Uh, Gaiman, in his introduction to this volume, refers to him as a, a half-wit, uh, which I guess that can that can suffice, I, I suppose. And we do see evidence of this, that uh, you know, the, his own people talk about how he is useless, how he can't do the sorts of things that other people his age ought to be able to do, and that you know, this is in some way has led to his mother's death, whether, you know, he murdered her or just, you know, worked her to death because he couldn't fend for himself, uh, that, you know, they, they seem to regard him this way. And so it is, so it is possible to think that the language here that has no accusative case that only has nominative pronouns, which is a very strange way of doing things. That's really a big part of the, the challenge here. And, and and actually it even struggles with a kind of genitive case as as well. So it you know, just can't function very well as English. And then does also have a significantly limited vocabulary. Uh, and then also has this metaphorical way of thinking about all sorts of things like clouds being uh, sky beasts. Um, he has uh, some, some names for types of foods that are uh, hybrid uh, or compound words as well well, right? So all of that, all of that might just be uh, because he is intellectually challenged and, and can't really speak the language of his people. Uh, he does also say that he has a hard time actually understanding the the girl, the, the girl who turns out to actually be Hobbes' son, uh, because this person, Hobbes' son, speaks differently. And it was hard to tell if that was you know him saying that he has a hard time understanding other people because of his cognitive abilities, or because it's a separate language, or, or not a separate language, but maybe a different dialect or an accent or something that the settled people have that is distinct from what the hunter-gatherers have. And so, right, the other option here is that this this is not just the way the narrator speaks, but this is more or less how everyone speaks. The hunter-gatherers, his people in particular, but then also the settlers have some variation on this that is mutually intelligible through some work. And it sounds to me, Brandon, like that's where you lean. 
Yeah, I do think they're speaking the same language. I mean, I'd I'd go in for a case of uh, of a different dialect or something like that. Um, but I don't think the narrator's lack of understanding is purely the fact that you know it's like a dances with wolves sort of situation or something like that. <laughs> I, I think it's more that he he can't learn. Like not being able to understand understand deception is a real problem. It's a real problem. That's a real cognitive uh, issue, um, and not just understand deception as it takes place, but not even understand that it's it's a concept. Um, you know, it's. I think it's why he struggles with him being accused of killing his mother. I don't. I don't think he was. I mean, I, I don't think he killed his mother, but. He can't understand that people would act in such a way to obscure the reasons why they want to kick him out of the group to come up with some justifiable reason why he should no longer be there. Like he's really holding them back. Um, And then he can't understand the fact that the girl was pretending to be a boy and the perfume is a kind of uh, olfactory deception. Like to me, these are all real cognitive hurdles that he cannot seem to get over. Absolutely. And and maybe I should back up a little bit and just be really clear because we've kind of been dancing around the issue of the language. And I mean, especially if if, if someone has not gotten a copy of this this book and, and read along with us. The 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 language, although you know, I characterized it earlier as being a real technical triumph here that Moore has invented this language, the language is stupid. Yeah. It's a stupid, stupid language, yes. right? We need to be clear about that. This is the language of a stupid person or a halfwit. It is a language that is broken. It's a language that is missing the parts of language. Like it has one part of language and is missing other cases, missing other parts. Uh, it's also all presented only in one tense, no matter whether the narrator is actually thinking about something in the present or thinking about something in the past, right? So it's it's really, really missing a lot of grammatical and syntactical features of language. And then also only has about 400 words uh, in its vocabulary instead of, you know, like tens of thousands of right. words in its vocabulary, right? So it is a stupid, stupid language. And so the real thing that we're trying to get at here is, is it a stupid language because the narrator is stupid? Right? Is is this the half-wit language of a half-wit, is how Gaiman would put it? Or is it that all of these people, these these Neolithic people here in, in Britain around 4000 BC, this is what their language is actually like? That it's their language is missing all of these features of language. That's that's the question we're trying to get at here. And I was I was dancing around it because I didn't want to, I don't know, I guess for some reason I didn't want to characterize it this way, but this is what we're trying to ascertain here. And maybe we should go back to that interview with Barry Kavanaugh, uh, Barry Kavanaugh of Blather from the year 2000, because Moore gives us an answer to this question. Here's what he says. I actually tried my best to write it in an approximation of what I thought Neolithic thought patterns might be like. So I've done it all in this completely boiled down English, uh, where I think there's a vocabulary of about 400 words in the first story. Uh, I mean, it's 60 pages long. It's very long and very dense, but I think I only use about 400 words. And when you think that the average vocabulary of the average sun reader is about 10,000 words, it's, uh, it was an experiment. (laughs) Uh, So that's what more has to to say here. And I, I have to say that this statement, when I went looking into this, when I discovered this interview, this 
I, I mean, it enraged me. That's that's the word I will use, or at least it did earlier this week. I have calmed down about it now, <laughs> but I want to talk about why this is dumb. And I, I've got two points here. We can just take them in turn. Uh, the first is just a matter of of craft, right? I mean, the, the this is the rest of the book is in regular English, even though you know it's not what characters would be speaking or thinking in. Right? We're going to encounter some characters who would be speaking and thinking in Latin. We're going to get some characters who would be thinking and speaking in either Anglo-Saxon or like uh, you know Middle English uh, or possibly Middle French, right? So. Why do this one chapter this way? Why decide not to translate this chapter into uh, in, into you know regular English, for lack of a better term? There and then the uh, that's maybe just a rhetorical question there to to get that out of my system. But the the second is this characterization of what Moore calls Neolithic thought patterns, because it it seems that Alan Moore doesn't think that prehistoric people had language the way that we do. Uh, he seems to think that these are stupid, not quite humans yet, is seems to be what he thinks, right? But this is simply not true. These people had a language that had a wide vocabulary that had like fully functioning grammar and syntax. These are human beings. These are homo sapiens. They are identical to us, right? They are biologically us. They're, uh, they are intellectually and neurologically us. And in fact, really, right, Moore seems to be envisioning Neolithic people as not being actually humans, but being some kind of intelligent animal that is evolving, that is developing language. And this is like the rudimentary steps there. But Neolithic people were incredibly intelligent. In fact, on average, probably more intelligent and more capable than your average person today, right? And so this this incensed me when I realized that he thought this. Yeah, I I mean, I get the sense that he's just been reading far too much like Harold Bloom and thinking that Shakespeare <laughs> invented humanity or something like that. Or, right, or that right. hu humans didn't have language before Shakespeare. Just, just utter nonsense. Of course, you know, I'm just really super minimizing and <laughs> simplifying Harold Bloom's literary arguments. But I mean, it's it's a ridiculous position to take. And, and you know, not that there's anybody to like defend the Neolithic people here, but kind of stupidly <laughs> prejudicial as well in a way that like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. So like, or maybe he's thinking, well, th these people aren't eating a lot of cooked meat. So like the protein consumption is like not quite in the brain. And uh, I, I have no idea. Um, uh, this this is a, a strange assertion. I can take it at face value that it's an experiment, um, which it certainly is, and and I think a largely successful one. But I do not like the the motives behind it um, because these people, how could they have a a concept of like a spirit world um, and con like complex thoughts about uh, like a spirit walking world like a dream world and and difficult philosophies about uh afterlifes or material world versus the spirit world which is all present in this story modes of communicating with the spirits which might be genuine um it's un it's unclear if that's the case like it, it, it the story works so much better if you just are thinking of it in terms of this you know 12 year old boy who's cut off from his tribe and has eaten a rotten bird because he's dumb, you know, like that, 
story works. The story doesn't work when you're introducing all of these complex ideas and then your character can't understand them. But then you go back and say that, well, everybody only has this vocabulary. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. Right. And I, I think that we, we can actually see some features of Alan Moore's misconception about Neolithic people uh, in, in, in general, or maybe just we should just say, uh, you know, prehistoric hunter-gatherers. So we'll talk about what, what we really mean when we talk about Neolithic in, in a bit. But, you know, some of the features that are embedded here that, that, that are hard actually to ascertain at, at first until you start putting it together. But it does seem that Moore's vision of what the narrator's people are like is that they don't wear clothes and they don't use fire. The narrator knows what fire is. He's seen it before, but he doesn't think of his people as a people uh, of fire, people who use fire. And we don't get any sense that when he's eating, uh, that, that when he's eats this bird, for example, which he eats raw, or when he's thinking that he's going to get some pigs, there's no sense that maybe he might actually build a fire and cook them. Uh, he doesn't have any thought that actually he doesn't know how to do that. And so he can't do that. So he's going to have to resort to eating it raw. So it does seem that, yeah, Moore doesn't think these people cook their food and that, or that they wear clothing, which is just nonsense. Uh, he, homo sapiens and not even homo sapiens, lots of different species in the genus homo have been using fire uh, at this point for tens of thousands of years and have been wearing clothes, right? So more doesn't actually even seem to be envisioning not just like modern Homo sapiens, meaning, uh, you know, later than about 60,000 BC when we developed language, uh, but is actually putting these hunter-gatherers at a, a technological level, or maybe we might even say just a relationship with their environment that is actually off by like literally hundreds of thousands of years and that predates homo sapiens existence as an independent species, right? That this is something that, that these are developments that other species before homo sapiens had actually already developed and, and more just seems to not be aware of that fact, I guess. Right. It seems as though he's envisioning these hunter gatherers as like homeless people in London who just like move around at night to stay warm <laughs> or something like <laughs> You know, it doesn't make any sense. Like, this is England. It's going to get cold in the winter, uh, but potentially freezing cold. Like, even nomadic tribes had shelters they could make, and they had to have used fire to survive, and they had to have killed animals in order to build shelter. I mean, it's... this idea of like, just because they didn't settle in one place didn't mean they were incapable of surviving the cold winter. Like none of, there wouldn't be people. What do they do in the, in the winter when there are no berries, when there's nothing to forage? Like he has, Alan Moore just has not thought all of this through and it's better maybe to not take his comments on the story and to, <laughs> and to just imagine your own interpretation. <laughs> right. Well, that's where I, I want to go next. And this, this is probably just going to be me putting my teacher hat on for, I don't know, I'm going to say five minutes, which might mean it's significantly longer than that. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But uh, I just want to talk about Neolithic civilization. And, and I actually want to start 
with just some some general comments on prehistory. And this has actually been really fun for me. I have not really thought all that much. I mean, I do some teaching about the uh, what you know used to be called the Neolithic Revolution or the the agricultural revolution, the birth of civilization. That I have done really only once actually in my professional life when I got to teach the uh, first half of world history, which is it's crazy that I've only gotten to do that once. I would love to teach that class all the time, but I haven't really thought uh, about this in, in quite a while. And so it was fun for me to do some serious business reading in preparation for this episode. I uh, got my hands on the uh, Cambridge uh, World Prehistory, which was, uh, it's like 3,000 pages of, um, of articles by uh, scholars working in different aspects of prehistory around the globe. That was super awesome. Also used the Oxford Handbook of uh, Neolithic Britain, also super cool. And then I read two uh, monographs by uh, Julian Thomas, who's a, an archaeologist at the University of, of Manchester, who works on the transition between um, the uh, middle uh, part of the Stone Age to the, the Neolithic, the last part of the Stone Age. Basically, he works on the year 4000 BC in Britain, right? And I read two, two books that he wrote. All of that was super awesome. So I'm just going to give some general comments here to ground us in prehistory, and then we can talk about some of the particular uh, features of the year 4000 BC as maybe it actually would have been. But but I do also want to say that Alan Moore is doing some some stuff that I think is spot on here. So we'll, we'll come back to that at the, the end. We'll look at some of the things that Moore is doing. But well, we should start by talking about archaic humans. So this includes us, it includes Homo sapiens, but it does also include other members of the, the genus Homo. And, and that includes Neanderthals, which, you know, everybody's heard of Neanderthals. And then also Denisovans, who, who, other, who people may not have heard of because they're not as widespread as Neanderthals or, or as widely known as Neanderthals, I mean, and only recently discovered, like in the last 30 years. Uh, Neanderthals developed around 400,000 years ago, Denisovans, and then Homo sapiens as well, around 300,000 years ago. Neanderthals lived in parts of Eurasia. Uh, it's a pretty broad distribution, in fact. But we here, right, we're supposed to be focusing on the East Midlands of England here. So we're interested in Europe. Neanderthals did live in southern Britain. And uh, in fact, the northernmost extent of Neanderthals would have been right around Northampton. And that's because everything north of Northampton was covered by glaciers at this point in prehistory. But Neanderthals really only were there uh, in Britain between 60,000 and 40,000 years ago. And in fact, 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals as a distinct group disappeared. Uh, that maybe is still something of a puzzle, something of a mystery, but we no longer think that they just like went extinct, like died in some kind of like, uh, you know, climate change or environmental catastrophe. Was, they, they died out because of breeding with, with humans, essentially. Yeah, is this, is, this is the Battlestar Galactica uh, 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 solution to the problem <laughs> right. of what happened to <laughs> Neanderthals. <laughs> Absolutely. So let me give some characteristics of what uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans and, and even uh, Homo sapiens you know, 100,000 years ago or, or 60 to 40,000 years ago would have been like. Uh, these are people who lived in families, uh, often lived in large groups of over 100. They're all hunter-gatherers, though, so they're all migratory for food, but they live in big groups, groups of over 100 often. Uh, that's certainly not what we see, you know, here in this story. Uh, also, heavy 
tool use. Uh, they engage in storage and the repeated use of sites for various purposes. So they would gather food, hunt food, and then store it for later. They would use the same places for those purposes and would construct things for the purpose of, of, of storing food items and, and other things that they would use, tools and, and, and so on. And they would, uh, they, they would use the things in their environment to build storage containers and so on. Uh, there is a question of whether or not these people, uh, whether we're talking about Neanderthals or Denisovans or Homo sapiens, had language. Uh, most scholars think not, but there are some scholars, and it's not a small minority, it's a fairly large minority, think that they they did. Um, this problem is probably going to be solved at some point in the next 50 years or so, and it's going to be real exciting when that gets solved. But essentially, we are talking here about cavemen, right? These are archaic people. This is what we think of when we mean cavemen, but they were sophisticated, right? They, they had tools. They created things. They used sites for, for purposes, right? Reused the same sites repeatedly for the same purpose. Uh, and then we get to modern humans. There actually are some anatomical differences with these archaic humans. Uh, modern humans develop in Africa around 200,000 years ago. Uh, you know, modern behaviors like language and art and, and real settlement, among other things, uh, develops sometime between 50,000 and 40,000 years ago. So really only at the same time that Neanderthals are disappearing. And then the first behaviorally modern humans in Europe uh, show up around the same time as the Neanderthals are, are disappearing, right? And there's no coincidence there. And these are, uh, you might have might know the term Cro-Magnon, but I think scholars really will prefer calling them European early modern humans or EEMH uh, for short, which is very confusing because EMH stands for Emergency Medical Hologram, <laughs> Star Trek Voyagers. <laughs> that was, uh, that, uh, that took some translating for me to, to do this week. Uh, but these people disappear around 15,000 years ago. But they did live in Britain occasionally, uh, but not actually for long. So Britain, in fact, was largely uninhabited by humans between 40,000 and 11,000 years ago. And, and all of this story so far, this is all in a period that's broadly called the Stone Age, meaning, hey, people did stuff with stone at this point. Point, and we can see that in the archaeological record. But we do then divide the Stone Age into three uh, sub-periods. And really everything that I've talked about so far has been in the first of those periods. Uh, that is the Paleolithic, which uh, just translates to Old Stone Age. Um, this is a bit simplistic, but it does loosely correspond with you know, a really long ice age or a really long series of of ice ages. Uh, and as the ice age ends, we enter the the Mesolithic, which just means middle stone age, because hey, it's this middle of the of the three stone ages that we talk about here. And the, the dates for the Mesolithic depend on where we're talking about. Uh, in the, the Near East, it's 22,000 BC until 10,000 BC. By the way, I'm I'm switching to our calendar. Instead of talking about years ago, I'm actually using our calendar system because we're getting close to coming back to the book, and that's important. In Britain, the Mesolithic period is 9,000 BC until 4,000 BC. And uh, hey, 4,000 BC is the date of this story, right? So we are actually almost <laughs> back to thinking about this story, thinking about Hobbes Hogg here. And this period, the Mesolithic period, has robust tool use, uh, really robust culture. It's got a general expansion of populations as the environment is becoming more hospitable than it was during the, the Ice Age. And humans are developing a ton of skills to harness their environment for their purposes. Things like traps, uh, fishing, boats, um, more complex buildings for, for storage. They're doing things like tree herding. Uh, they don't chop down trees, but they burn 
forests and burn individual trees in forests. They do this to um, help with making certain that trees that give them food will grow and not trees that don't give them food. They also do it to make clearings for the animals that they want to live off of. They make nicer environments for the animals that they want to eat so that there will be more of the animals that they want to eat and will be easier to hunt, right? And and that is all really complex stuff, right? I mean, and, and let me just repeat too, a big thing here, Mesolithic people used boats to to get around. Like there was uh, not, you know, a, a, there was not transportation across the ocean. These would have been coastal boats, but people could travel by by boat. This was technology that they'd already, uh, that humans had developed at this point. And in Britain specifically, there's a new group of people who, who get to Britain at this point, a group of people that are usually called Western hunter-gatherers or WHG, which means nothing in Star Trek. So that was a lot easier for me to, to, to handle. <laughs> and then after this, we're finally in the Neolithic period. This is the new Stone Age. This is is agriculture. This is animal husbandry. This is the birth of civilization. In Europe, this also means megalithic construction, you know, Stonehenge, right? And in Britain, 4000 BC, this is the transition between the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. This is the, the dawn of farming in Britain. And there is massive, and has been for a long time, massive scholarly debate about that development, right? Uh, one, was the introduction of agriculture and animal husbandry in Britain, was that revolutionary? Or was it more of a gradual transformation? And then also, where did the, the knowledge, the technology of farming and animal husbandry, animal domestication, where did that come from? Was this a purely independent indigenous development? Absolutely no one thinks that. But was this done by indigenous people? Or is this the result of some kind of colonization? Meaning, were the first farmers in Britain people who already knew about farming from somewhere else in Europe and migrated to Britain as colonists? Or is it that indigenous people in Britain had contacts with farmers outside of Britain and decided, yeah, that seems like a good way to live. Let's do some of that, right? So that's a huge scholarly debate here. And so that's my big monologue here. I didn't see how long that went, Brandon. I know it was more than five <laughs> minutes, though. Uh, this is what happens in the uh, the realm of teaching online as well, is that uh, the lectures are getting longer because there's no one actually looking at me. But um, what I really want to do, Brandon, is just bring us back out now that I've characterized prehistoric Britain, and in particular, 4000 BC, and just say, hey, what elements of this do we actually see in Hobbes Hogg? Well, well, first, I just want to say I'm shocked there's actually any scholarly debate or controversy around these questions, because I, I, Eric von Daniken has really settled the matter. <laughs> I think um, it was uh, aliens. Right? It was that's, aliens. That's yeah. the real answer. <laughs> uh, so we do see the use of tools in this story. We see the beginning of, of uh, animal husbandry, at least not maybe not farming. Um, though I do think the suggestion that these people are uh, mostly settled along the river could indicate that the agricultural revolution, as I'll put it, though, you know, there's some data, debate around that is is uh, not far from taking place. Um, the building of bridges we see. So I think I think that's kind of the main elements that we see of this kind of Neolithic period. Um, uh, the, the, we could maybe even summarize it as the beginnings of a kind of mastery over nature, a subduing of nature, uh, rather than being left to the whims of nature uh, or the natural world. So the the hunter-gatherer 
clan in this story is still kind of at the whims of the seasonality, the natural world, things like that. The settlers are beginning to master it. They're cutting down trees. They're building bridges. They're making permanent homes for themselves. And using fire and tools, like the the way they're using stones as a weapon, like this idea uh, that weapons are used against other of their own kind instead of just something that is used to, to get animals and meat from animals. Um, certainly in 2001, a space odyssey, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, so that, that's what I see as elements of this kind of Neolithic period in the story. Uh, also a major cultural transition. And then, um, maybe even a kind of birth of civilization around a common, religious practice and belief or spiritual practice and belief, uh, rituals requiring human sacrifice, that there is a spirit world that everybody believes what the spirit world is or the same things about what the spirit world is and what they require, uh, the consequences of failing to practice the religion and the necessary rights to get what you want from the spirits. This is all, I think, kind of like birth of civilization stuff. Right. And I, I think Alan Moore has actually done a really great job of of showing us like, this as a world in transition where there is civilization, uh, you know, nascent civilization here, but there are people who are still continuing to opt out of that, right? They've seen it and decided it's not for them. They want to keep being hunter-gatherers and showing these as two distinct worlds, worlds in or, or social groups maybe, and, and, and social groups or worlds in conflict with one another. I think that that's really, really awesome. He's zoomed in on this and taken this world that you know, scholars argue about and and argue about in terms of, of of centuries right pinpointing things to what century or even sometimes just what millennium something was was from and and telling a very human story right zooming in on some characters and showing us what this world might have been like from the point of view of some of these characters and i think it does a great job of contrasting the hunter gatherers from the 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 nascent uh the, the the settlers the people who are are building the first bits of civilization but i i do think that the people he's showing us as hunter-gatherers are not actually Mesolithic people. They're not actually what hunter-gatherers would have been like in Britain in 4000 BC or even 9000 BC. He's showing us how people lived in the Paleolithic, you know, tens of thousands of years previously when he shows us people not using fire, uh, people not wearing clothing. Also, people seeming to just really be at the whims of their environment because they weren't. It is true that they weren't dominating their environment uh, or subduing it, I think is the word that you used, Brandon, which I think is a great word for this, but they were, they were stewards. They were, they were doing bits of hurting uh, with not, without actually domesticating and they were manipulating their environment and deciding what they wanted to grow where and making that happen for them without actually planting and cultivating necessarily. And they were using uh, material parts of their environment in order to construct buildings, bones, but also some construction in wood and were making marks uh, on wood and using wood in interesting ways and, and so on. And and so more, and, and maybe this helps the story in some way actually to, to give us the contrast, uh, presents them as if they're a group of humans from tens of thousands of years prior to to what what we would actually see going on here. But doing that does heighten the contrast. But I am also really glad you noticed, Brandon, that we don't see any agriculture here. But the thing is, agriculture has to come first before animal husbandry. 
because you need the agriculture to feed your animals. So it's interesting that that's just not, doesn't seem to be present here, but that might also just be because the narrator isn't interested in it or doesn't really understand what it is or something like that. Right, right. That could be the case. I mean, we there is an indication maybe that some agriculture is taking place. Like I think he's being fed like wheat or like cooked wheat or some kind of other plant. Um, and he's, you know, the flowers seem to have been cultivated on some level. And when he's like laying in the grass, waiting for the girl to find him, that might be a, a field of, uh, of a crop or something like that, or some kind of grass to feed the animals. It, it's not clear. It could be that he just does not understand the world around him, but, um, it could also be the case that he's just experiencing a marshland and the kind of stuff that naturally grows there. I don't understand why the settlement people, if there are lots of hunter gatherers around, why would they would be so hostile to one instead of growing their uh, settlement? I mean, certainly part of this sort of idea about civilization is growth. Um, but the, the conflict is interesting, though, in the story, and it certainly adds necessary conflict to the story. Um, but you also have to wonder why, you know, maybe the clan that he was a part of could have gotten several miles away. But why he never sees any other evidence of other hunter gatherers is uh, a real question of the story as well. I don't think this story is meant to be picked apart on that level, though. I do think though more contradicts us here that this character is just oblivious to the world around him. Like he cannot make sense of it. And so he wouldn't find traces of other hunter gatherers when he talks about his people, you know, and that they don't believe in human sacrifice, that it doesn't make sense. I think he's clearly just talking about his clan not like a larger culture of hunter-gatherers. And so that's another layer of maybe confusion in the text as well, is that um, he doesn't understand culture. Uh, he understands what his people practice, which is basically eating berries and grazing off the land. But but I want to go back to the, the conflict between the two groups here, because I, I, something I was interested in is whether or not more was taking a, a stance in this long standing, I mean, like centuries long argument about how civilization got to Britain. If it was indigenous people uh, learning from outsiders and then saying, yeah, let's, let's do that ourselves. Or if it meant that people actually came from across the English Channel or across the, the North Sea or the Bay of Biscay and settled in Southern England and that there may have even been some violence about that. I couldn't quite tell if Moore was taking a stance there. I couldn't tell if the settlers here are meant to be foreigners or the descendants of foreigners, or if they are simply natives, uh, people who three generations ago would have actually also been hunter-gatherers here in Britain who simply adopted civilization. Did you have a sense of that? If I had to pick you know, an option here based on the text of the story, I would say that they are natives to the, you know, Northampton or the English area. They're indigenous people um, because they settled along a river, but they seem to understand there's a bigger body of water. And this seems to be some sort of spiritual revelation. And they're trying to get to that bigger body of water. 
So my sense then is that they are native to the land and did not come in boats from the ocean three generations ago um, and then make it this far inland and then settle along a river and then have kind of the spiritual need to return to the ocean. I could also be super wrong about what the getting from the little body of water to the big body of water is. It could be a lake that's being referred to or something else like that. Um, but my sense is, yeah, that they're, they're native to the land, to the area. Yeah, that's my sense too. I do think it is the ocean for sure. And I, I think, you know, there is the evidence here of language where although the narrator does comment that Hobbes' son speaks differently than he does, they're not unintelligible. They're able to have these conversations. And I think that if, and and so there's not any evidence there that this is you know really distinct foreign languages, you know, the way that say like Mandarin and English might be, or even just, you know, French and German might be. And so that's one thing that we, you know, see there. But, the, you know, there is this contrast with the religion there. It's quite clear that what Hobb is up to, his his religious practice, but also the cosmology of Hobb and the settlers is a different religious worldview, a different cosmology than the hunter-gatherers have. And that might suggest that these are outsiders who have come here and settled down. Uh, but it also might simply be that this is a change that coincides with the developing a, a settled a settled life. I was on the fence about this. The cosmology of the story is not really well articulated. Um, and that's because of the point of view of the narrator that we're trapped in. But it's clear that at some point, somebody realized that they killed somebody and something good came of it. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> that's also kind of what happens to uh, the hunter-gatherer group you know, whether or not um, anybody killed the narrator's mother, uh, which I, I think they did, it's clear that some good came of it for the group. And so, I, you know, that could be a kind of beginning of a sort of human sacrifice attitude that is maybe developing around the whole uh, uh, land, the whole people of this area. Well, there's one more thing I want to deal with here on my uh, my subject heading on the outline of, hey, let's talk about prehistoric Britain. And I actually want to return us to the H.P. Lovecraft story, The the Rats in the Walls, which we did on, on Patreon. Uh, you know, for us, it was literally like two weeks ago, but, you know, it was six months ago for people hearing this uh, uh, on Elder Sign. Uh, there was something that uh, I had wanted to do when we did The Rats in the Walls, in fact, had promised that we would do in the recap episode and then did not do in the discussion because we had covered almost everything that I wanted to do um, in this bit and so just decided not to do it. And that was to really dissect the linguistic atavism at the end where the uh, the narrator of The Rats in the Walls is speaking uh, you know, regular contemporary English, not circa 2000, but circa 1900, and then backtracks uh, through four distinct languages. And then at the end, um, you know, he's speaking Celtic uh, and then uh, Welsh, really. And then from that switches to just a kind of, of gibberish. Uh, we never quite broke that down. I wanted to break that down to, to talk about Lovecraft's uh, understanding of uh, of not just the history of Britain, but also the prehistory of Britain. And I was reminded of that because of uh, one of the books by Julian Thomas that I read this week, where he had an awesome 100-page section where he went through 
everything that every single scholar uh, for the last century has ever had to say about understanding the transition between Mesolithic and Neolithic Britain. Uh, it was just a, a literature review, and it was amazing. It was just super exhilarating. Uh, I would say it kept me up at night, but really, actually, what was keeping me up at night was my baby. But I was glad to have the PDFs <laughs> of this book to, to read on my uh, G-jaw while he uh, refused to sleep in the crib and would only sleep in my arms. So I want to get around to saying what I learned about what Lovecraft would have thought he knew uh, about some of the dates and developments and so on that I've just given a mini lecture uh, about. Uh, because one of the things that Lovecraft was doing, and I did call attention to this when we did Rats in the Walls, but one of the things he's doing there is conflating the Celts with the builders of Stonehenge, which is simply not true. We still aren't quite sure when Celtic speakers get to Britain. Celtic is an Indo-European language. Uh, you know, it's related to English that way. But it's a it's a late arrival. Uh, I think 1200 BC is about the earliest date that some people will give. Uh, most scholars seem to think probably between 1000 and 800 BC. Stonehenge built around 2400 or between 2400 and 2200 BC. So you know, significantly after this story takes place. But the settler people that we see here maybe are you know you know their descendants are going to be the people who build uh, who build Stonehenge but Lovecraft thinks that it's Celts who built Stonehenge and it definitely was not so Lovecraft th thinks and and you know not just because like he's wrong but everyone at this time uh, had the dates of the Neolithic period in Britain and really everywhere completely wrong that and, and maybe we do too though of course we think that we we know better what we're talking about <laughs> but they would have thought that Stonehenge was built around or after the year 2000 we know it was uh, 2000 BC, I should say. We know it was built before that, uh, but thought that the Neolithic period really ran from 2000 BC to about 1500 BC, which is you know simply not the case. It's a significantly longer period than that, and so that's why they thought Neolithic people in Britain, the people who built all these megalithic structures, big stone structures like Stonehenge and and others, were Celts, but they were not. Neolithic Britons were not any kind of Indo-European, and we have no idea what their uh, what their language was. This language is just totally lost to us. It means there was no writing, and it, it has not survived in any spoken form anywhere on the planet, anywhere in Europe or Britain. So it's totally just lost to us. But um, that was one of the things that I had wanted to point out about what Lovecraft was doing, that he thinks the Celts built Stonehenge when they super, super did not. They were not Indo-Europeans at all. And uh, I regret, I regretted that I didn't point that out. I mean, I, I, I heard it when I was editing that episode and kicked myself. So now I've taken this opportunity to get back to that. Well, I'm glad you did. I mean, it's it's so fascinating. Then uh, I recommend that all of our listeners go and, and listen to the Rats in the Walls episode because that was a lot of fun to do. Yes, it was. I mean, it's one of my favorite things that we've ever done together. So, okay. So this has been a lot of me monologuing. I have actual questions for you now, Brandon, <laughs> because, hey, this is a weird fiction story and a weird fiction podcast. Let's talk about some weird elements of this story. I want to start by talking about shagfuls or, or bar guests, maybe. When the the narrator encounters this shagful, which you know we know this isn't a dream, but he, he when he encounters the shagful, he he tells us a bit about them. He says that shagfuls don't physically exist; they're just spirits. Uh, they used to be physical beings, uh, and 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 actually, I think here's a place where we should just let the narrator speak for himself. So, I, uh, for the second time, I'm going to read some of this crazy language uh, into the microphone here. So here's what he says about shagfuls. Eyes people say as shagfuls is they big and frightening dogs, which kind they is alive on world and big ice while, as like to irks, and now like irk kind is no more alive. 
Only they spirit dogs walk now, up this world and down other, and where dirt come thin and tween of worlds, as with a cross path and a river bridge, Shagful is come thereby. So there's something else going on that we're going uh, to talk about them next. But what I want us to focus on here is the idea of there being two worlds and also some places where the boundary is thin, because this this maybe actually does seem to be something that Hobb and his son believe too. And so my question for you, Brandon, is that, uh, you know, since Moore writes weird fiction and maybe this is a weird fiction story, is this business with the two worlds and some places where the boundary is permeable, is that objectively true in this speculative world? Or is this simply their subjective prehistoric cosmology? I'd have to read more stories in the novel to like answer that question on a textual level. My sense is that in this story, it kind of doesn't matter if it's objectively true it's true enough to cause material impacts on, on the real world. Um, so like the truth, I, I don't know, in a pragmatic sense, I think it's true is objectively true in the world of this story, according to Alan Moore. Also, maybe, um, but I, I really can't give a, a definitive answer uh, because I don't know what the rest of the text looks like, but the way the story ends with the narrator seeing the path certainly indicates to me that it is uh, true of of the world of these people uh and and with hob marking the ground maybe with uh some sort of oracular empathy or through uh, maybe the narrator's shouting out what he's seeing we don't quite know that there is uh there are boundaries between the the spirit world and our world and there are places maybe where those are thin Yeah, I think my sense as well is that this is something that is maybe kind of objectively true about the world that like, hey, every once in a while, you're just going to see a bar cast. Don't worry about it. I mean, unless it gets you and then you should definitely worry about it. Uh, But uh, you know, we'll have to read on and and see. I don't think that when we get to 1607 or 1995 that there are still going to be bar guests, you know, shagfuls walking around in the, the world. I think that probably Moore's take here is that uh, uh, as, as much as I was upset that he seems to think that prehistoric people, certainly prehistoric hunter-gatherers are stupid, like like something is just wrong with their, their, their brains, like they're not fully human cognitively yet, I think that he's going to be taking the tack that prehistoric people knew something about spirituality that we have lost because of our machines, which is, you know, uh, this is a common refrain in the 1990s when this book is is written, right? That technology has blinded us to the true spiritual cosmology of the world that our ancestors knew about. And uh, here are some healing crystals. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I'll be looking forward to seeing what goes on in the rest of the book where kind of the magic uh, world or the weird world intersect the mundane. All right, so let's talk about Irks. Uh, this passage that I, I just read about the the Barghest or the the, the Shagfuls. This is actually the second appearance of Irks in this story, though we we left them out of the recap because they don't matter at all for the plot. But uh, the first passage is actually just one page earlier when the the narrator is in a, a forest of white trees. Actually, these are probably birch, and also this maybe explains why he thought the logs were pigs. And uh, he comes to a clearing with a, a large old stone in the middle of it, and. On the stone are markings made by people of, of, of some sort, and there are pictures of, of, of trees and, and dogs and, and maybe some other objects as well, but the narrator does not like them. Uh, he thinks something is confusing about images because they aren't 
real and 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 maybe this is because of his neurology but he does present this as if it's a cultural value of his people right that that is his people his whole group don't like these pictures they're all suspicious and maybe even a bit afraid of markings and he, he also says that many markings which i take to mean not all markings but many markings are really old and they were made by irks in what he calls the big ice wiles but irks don't exist anymore in the world, uh, though many say that they are little people who live in caves and hide from the narrator and other surface people. Uh, so there are a few ways we might approach this, but maybe let's start by asking if uh, there are fairies in this speculative world or little people or the fair folk <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I think little people is probably what uh, Alan Moore has in mind, though. I mean, you cannot escape fairies or the imagery of fairies in, in a lot of British fiction. Uh, I don't love the way that kind of fairies have uh, migrated over to fiction in the US, especially in like urban fantasy or like magic stories or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's a much richer kind of sense of, I don't know, tradition and traditions of storytelling in, in British literature. Um and I think it's fair to say something like that is on Alan Moore's mind, though it's probably, I don't know, even in older people who they could write, right? They could make markings. Um, so it's another sense that like something from the deep past has been lost and a new sort of mythology has has grown up around it. Right. And this is something that, that shows up in speculative fiction all the time. And we, we've encountered this idea in the Fifth Head of Cerberus over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, where you know it, that, that's, a, that's a story taking place in the near future. And the, uh, the last section of that book, the last of the, the three related novellas, the principal character there, or one of the two principal characters there, is an anthropologist from Earth who you know, casually lets us know that uh, between 1972 and uh, you know, a few centuries in the future when that story is taking place, uh, anthropologists and archaeologists have definitively discovered that, in fact, all the stories of little people are the fair folk in Britain and Iceland and uh, Scandinavian Peninsula uh, were true, that they really were a folk memory of, uh, of, a, of diminutive of some diminutive species in the genus Homo, right? A, a, a cousin of Homo sapiens, but not Neanderthals or uh, maybe Denisovans. Actually, maybe they were Denisovans, but Gene Wolfe wouldn't have known about them yet, right? <laughs> right. That, uh, but yeah, this is a this is a thing that is a, a big deal in speculative fiction, also in pop archaeology as well. I mean, you you know, you invoked Von Daniken earlier. He loved this sort of thing. I don't know that he had a stance on on this, right? But Von Daniken and and people of his ilk love to use this as a way of of, of pointing out that you know there is this mystery about the past, and that maybe we should take folk tales and legends more literally um, than we do, or as evidence of preserving some, some cultural memory of you know the distant, distant past of tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, so I, I definitely think that's what Moore has in, in mind here. One of the ways where this breaks down, though, in thinking about how does this map onto what we actually know about prehistoric Britain, is that there would be there is that there wouldn't really be any way for there to be this tradition of 
of remembering Neanderthals who maybe made these images or previous Homo sapiens who made these images. Because since images like this would have been made, uh, the island has been uninhabited by any member of any Homo genus for you know, like thousands and thousands of years. And so we wouldn't have that type of memory. So this really would only have to be a story that people are making up to explain these artifacts that they're finding, but wouldn't have any actual like secret, you know, knowledge or like longstanding conf- memory that simply has become confused by this point. But, you know, it's cooler the way Alan Moore envisions it. So I'm into it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that sounds right to me. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, there's one more thing I want to talk about and then we'll get out of here. Uh, And that is human sacrifice, which, you know, is a real thing that happens in the real world and isn't necessarily a weird fiction element, but certainly it's being presented here in the trappings of weirdness, right? That we've got Hob in this uh, charcoal, I think, that he's spreading all over his face. He's wearing a crown of of antlers from presumably a, a red deer. And he believes that making this human sacrifice is going to have a real material effect on the the world, on the real world. And that this is part of his job and maybe the most important part of his job as the priest for these settler communities. The, the question that I've got here, Brandon, is, is really about like what is more showing us here? What is more doing with this? Because he makes a big deal of the fact that the hunter-gatherers do not do human sacrifice and that it's even kind of a shocking idea for the narrator. So I sort of took this to be that Moore is pointing out here that there is a price of civilization because there is literally a price, right? This is literally the price of building a road, which is certainly an important part of civilization here. I think Moore is definitely making that point that there's a that there is a real cost. I mean, not only is the cost like the actual practice of human sacrifice where uh, these people are choosing to kill members of their kind, uh, their kinfolk maybe, or, or of their clan or whatever's going on here in order to make progress or necessary progress as they see it. It's also the case that like, at some point, these people decided to justify this kind of murderous behavior for the sake of their own progress. And I, and I think that that's why I read, um, the opening of the story, the mother dying, her head in a puddle, uh, reading that as being drowned, um, that they scapegoat the narrator, that these ideas that Moore is working with indicate that at, at points in our civilizational past, maybe even today, we decide that for the better of the group, um, for the betterment of the group, it's worth having some people removed from the group through death or ostracization. Um, and that that is a parallel in this story, that even though the hunter-gatherer group doesn't think it's necessary to kill in order to appease the gods or to control the gods in some way, they still maybe choose to kill in order to create the best outcome for the whole group. Um, and that this practice isn't really foreign to any human society or human group. I mean, we do that today. We still have the death penalty in our penal system. Um, we send soldiers to fight wars. I mean, this is not 
we don't say that there's some spiritual value to this, though people who argue, you know, abstract concepts of justice and even some, uh, you know, Christian sects still believe that these are necessary practices uh, in order to have God's blessing. So I, I don't think we're even that far removed from these ideas of human sacrifice. And I think more is, is showing that even a uh, small community that doesn't necessarily have the spiritual side to it still might make these types of choices to preserve the integrity of the group. Yeah, something that we we have not mentioned, but probably should here, you know, just as we're getting ready to close out the episode, is that, uh, hey, this is actually the story of Abraham. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's all. That's the first thing I thought after thinking about how uh, Moore was appropriating James Joyce's uh, opening to a Portrait of the <laughs> Artist of a uh, as a young man is that we're doing an Abrahamic story here where the the God doesn't stop the human sacrifice in order to say like, Hey, use animals instead, since you're already killing them and give the meat to the priest cast or something like that. He's saying, um, no, we still need the human sacrifice. It's just, you can trick the gods. Well, or, you know, maybe actually the gods have intervened here or whoever is being worshiped or sacrificed to here. We actually don't get any theology here, but maybe that entity or entities did intervene and they sent the narrator and said, you don't actually have to kill your son. You can kill a human who's not related to you and not even part of your civilization if you want to. Or maybe it's you can kill halfwits. Yeah, I mean, all of that would be incomprehensible to the narrator whose point of view we're fixed in. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's actually one of the real masterstrokes of what Alan Moore has done here, as difficult as it was to read. And, uh, you know, I mean, he laughs about it in the interview, right? When he talks about how maybe this wasn't the best, the best move to not only invent your own crazy language that doesn't have an accusative case for some reason, and also uh, to have your narrator uh, have some kind of uh, neurological disorder of some sort that makes, you know, understanding what's going on doubly difficult. Uh, it's cool because we have to try to puzzle these things out. And I think that can give us a lot of fodder uh, for discussion. But I do want to say one more thing about the point of like there being a price or a cost for civilization here, which is that, you know, there is a price and a cost for civilization immediately as soon as societies develop it. I mean, this is where class comes from. Uh, certainly slavery, right? We, this is where slavery comes from from is you get other people to do the farming for you because farming sucks. It sucks more than hunter than being a hunter gatherer. It sucks, right? But if if you get to own the farms and not actually have to do the farming, then civilization is pretty freaking awesome for you, right? You get beer and just can sit around and drink beer while people you own do that labor. That's not happening here yet in this story, but it is quite clear, right, that there is this attitude that Hob has that the the hunter gatherers are other enough that it's okay to kill them. So we're not far from enslaving other people to field, to farm the fields at this point. No, definitely not. Yeah. Every, I think all of the trappings of civilization are well on their way uh, by the time we get to the end of this story. Well, and we don't know. Neither of us has read uh, read ahead in this in this book, though. I think we are, we are hoping to do more of these chapters as standalone stories as we go. Because I certainly really enjoy this, even though I was quite grumpy about Moore's depiction <laughs> of the hunter gatherers. I still really love this. This was a technical triumph. I did think it was really evocative as well. I enjoyed thinking about prehistoric Britain. I'm excited to to carry on with this, and I do suspect that human sacrifice is going to be the through line at least for a few chapters. Certainly. The 
This is a book called Voice of the Fire, and we have a fire at the end that actually does reveal something to the narrator and maybe to, to Hob and his people as well. And the uh, the next installment, if we continue on, and you know that will always be up to our Patreon supporters to vote for this or not, but the next installment, which is 2500 BC, so that might have an early Stonehenge in it or you know something around that time anyway, uh, is called The Cremation Fields, right? So so someone's getting burned, maybe after death, but maybe to death. So that might be the through line. And it will be interesting to track, you know, human sacrifice, if indeed that is the thing that's going to connect us as we go. Yeah, I really am hopeful that we're able to cover more of this novel. I, I too thought, you know, especially on a reread that, as we said, it's a technical triumph. I mean, the, the technique in the story, the literary techniques used by Alan Moore, we mentioned metonymy, but also, you know, foreshadowing, uh, is big. Um, the puzzling out of language, all of it is, is fair play. I think you and I were just kind of having grumpy weeks when we read this story the first time. <laughs> I think if we're looking ahead and anticipating doing the next one, I, I think we're, uh, we're done with this one. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Uh, we'd really love for you to support the network if you're not already doing that. Please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia and consider uh, supporting this network with whatever you can. It goes a long way for us. Yeah, we'd be so grateful for your support. And we've got some really awesome goals that your support will let us reach, including doing a series on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, or the first installment of it at any rate, though we could add to that in the future, which would be awesome. We've got We've got tons of stuff we would love to do, and your support makes that possible. And hey, while you're on the internet, please come to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and talk to us about this story. Uh, this was an extremely immersive story. I feel like I have been living in this world for a week now. It's actually going to be hard for me to switch to the, the next thing that we've got to do, the next story that we've got to do, and I would love to keep talking about it. And we had some some big questions. I think we also threw down some, some gauntlets, took some serious dances here that we would uh, love some pushback on as well. So next time we are going to be back with In the Court of the Dragon by Robert W. Chambers. That's the, the next King in Yellow story. Very excited about that. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>